0: Compassionate Father, loving Jesus, comforting spirit, your word instructs us to weep with those who weep. We're also told to seek justice and love mercy. This week, my heart aches, I know our hearts ache, and we weep for our friends in Haiti who are suffering from a devastating earthquake. On the heels of a long list of events filled with strife, conflict, and tension, this is one more thing heaped on an already beaten down people and nation. And so we pray for our Christ community, partner writ large, the Global Orphan Project, as they minister on the ground in Haiti. We pray for their protection and their effectiveness. May they be your hands and feet as they minister to the people of Haiti. And for any other organization or people group that are there to be assisting hands in the name of Jesus, may you empower them, may you strengthen them, may you you guide them in wisdom. God, bring about deliverance and care. Similarly, our hearts are drawn to the collapse of Afghanistan and we think specifically of the Christians in the country who now face very real persecution and the possibility of jail or even death because of their faith in you. We pray for our friends once again in a global or a a broader church partner at Christ Community at Elam who are closely watching the situation and trying to be involved where they can. We pray for your church and your followers to remain courageous. We pray for deliverance from evil, for protection for the weak, for refuge for the displaced and those who are able to flee the country. Lord, we pray for your gospel to spread in both Haiti and Afghanistan. Even in these extreme days, we pray you will shine bright and your church will thrive and expand by the very power of the spirit and his presence that unites us with our brothers and sisters across oceans, across lands. And so now, Lord, as we continue here in our space, to worship you we pray we can engage your word through prayer through song and through spoken word we pray we won't take for granted this privilege of worshiping here this morning when so many in our world do not have this opportunity we pray for many of our brothers and sisters who are not with us this morning but are joining via live stream we pray lord that your spirit's presence would be felt by them as well may we have ears to hear and eyes to see how you want to shape and mold us today. And so we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in whom we have new life. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen, and Amen. Well, it's easy for us to think we can recognize it. We think we know the look the loneliness, the coldness. We think we can recognize and we think we know what death looks like. But often, and actually historically, we have gotten it terribly, terribly wrong. There's a whole series within the history of the United States where people and across the world where people would bury folks and when they would do so, they would attach a string inside the coffin and above the ground, there would be a little bell attached to that string, such that after medical professionals saw no signs of life, could not, you know, uh, perceive any sort of heartbeat, um, if they were to wake up from some deep coma two to three days later, they could literally be saved by the bell. Um, <laughs> Zach Morris never realized uh, how deeply important his message was. Okay, if you know that old show, congratulations, you're old like me now. Um, we can get death terribly, terribly wrong. I mean, and there's actually a whole genre of movies um, where people are dead and they don't even realize it, right? It's not just maybe the most often you know, quoted one, The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, right? This whole time he, he was dead and he didn't even realize it. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, that's your fault. Um, another one's Vanilla Sky, where Tom Cruise is in this kind of lucid dream state. Um, he's basically dead, he's not alive, but In that process, he's chasing after someone he deeply loves. Um, And in that whole process, both these individuals are basically dead. And in this genre of dead and not knowing it, there's this whole movement where there's someone who desperately, desperately wants to be with a loved one, but they no longer can. And so they're unwilling to accept the fact that they are indeed dead. And they would rather believe and overlook all the facts right in front of them just in order to believe the lie that they're still alive, that they still are connecting. And as viewers, as people who are watching this movie, this genre, we get swept up in the sea of denial. Until the very end, we go, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Maybe some of you did, and you're like, I knew the whole time. Well, congratulations. Um, Often, we think we know what death looks like, but we have no idea. It's really hard to recognize. And yet, As difficult as it may be to know death, the more elusive is life. Life. There's going to come a point for every single person in this room where we will experience death, save the return of Jesus Christ. But not everybody in here will live, not really live anyway. In the words of Bill Wallace, actually, it's actually just William Wallace from Braveheart, but I thought I'd church it up. Bill Wallace (laughs) Um, Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Every one of us. There might be all of these different masquerading kind of perceptions of life, but in reality, they're death. There's a bunch of promises for life that don't actually deliver. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Or as Thoreau brilliantly said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What about you? The question I have for us this morning is, are you really alive? Are you really alive? Are you masking the death that's actually your life right now? Are you coping and just navigating death rather than being really alive? And how do we know? How do we know if we're actually Alive Once again, instead of living in this sea of denial and actually having a bunch of folks around us that are on in the same perception and want to believe the falsehood that you yourself want to believe, how do we know if we're really alive? Well, this is a question that has plagued humankind as long as death has been around. And the biblical writers address this question. They have a ton invested in answering this question and it keeps popping up again and again and again across the whole biblical narrative and here's where they land the difference between life and death is the holy spirit the difference between life and death is the holy spirit he makes all the difference in the world and this is why we as a church are spending six weeks Zeroing in on this ethereal, often forgotten person of the, tr- of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Looking at the story of the Spirit. Because without him is death. With him is life. So let's explore together how we can know life and actually know indeed that we have life. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37 Ezekiel chapter 37 it's in the Old Testament it's after the Psalms and it's before Matthew other than that you can start digging around all right so Ezekiel chapter 37 now if you've been walking with us in the formed.life throughout the week then I'm going to say a couple of things that you've already learned um, mainly this is a teaser for those of you who are not in the life to be jumping in and joining with us. What we're seeking to do Monday through Saturday is to provide resources to be having your mind and your hearts in the text and also better equipping you to be able to read the text well so that as we come together on Sunday as the people of God, we can dive in more deeply and more informed together. So, Here's one thing about Ezekiel. He is called a major prophet, not because he's in the big leagues, but because he writes more than others. That's all it means, all right? There are three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They write a ton, like a whole lot. And then the other prophets are called minor prophets, not because they couldn't cut it, but because they just wrote more succinctly. That's it. They got a lot of wisdom in those minor prophets. They figured out how to say some things and some pretty powerful punches. So here we have Ezekiel. He is a major prophet. And a prophet is someone who either has this glorious experience, vision, or message from God that comes out of their intimate relationship with God. And in that, they have this message that they bring that is God's word to God's people or for the broader national or global scene. And so here we find Ezekiel. In chapter 37, and a pretty crucial time in the history of the world. We find Israel has abandoned God. Israel, which is a nation that God had started through a guy named Abraham and a woman named Sarah who were super old and they had no kids and they were way past childbearing years. And then God gave an extraordinary miracle, gave them a child and he made a promise that he was gonna give them a land, a people and a nation. And he did over time and they became glorious and huge and had massive influence. And then they abandoned God. And that's where we find them here they had chased after ideas goals, ideals frameworks of the good life that were masking around or masquerading around as the life that God provides but in reality they were nothing more than idolatry and in Israel's history they actually took shape in wood, gold and silver but there weren't gods, they were ideas in which they thought that's the best life and so they chased after those and God was like fine if you want to chase after that that's going to destroy you and I'm going to give you over to that if that's what you really want it's not going to meet your needs it's not going to do what you hope it's going to do but go for it and they do and it decimates them they abandon god his ways his purposes and it leads to their destruction and by 597 bc the very pillar city of the nation of israel although it had already broken up into two kingdoms at this point jerusalem comes crumbling down after the siege of Babylon. And many within Jerusalem are exiled to a foreign land. Now that is not a nice vacation, okay? This is slavery, this is abuse, this is violence, disenfranchisement. I mean, this is extraordinarily horrific. But this is what their idolatry gave them. This is not what God wanted for them. But God gave them what they said they wanted. And so we find Israel, by Ezekiel 37, basically in a place of hopelessness. The national hope, the promises of God, and all that God had promised he would do through them, felt utterly dead. Sure, there were still some people alive, but they were scattered around the world. They were as good as dead. And yet, by God's grace, he said, you know what, I'm not done yet. I'm not finished with them. I'm going to do something, something that only I can do. And what happens, the reason why, actually, if you look in Ezekiel 36, this is pretty astounding. And actually throughout Ezekiel, God gets jealous. Is that because he's arrogant and he just wants to be at the center stage? No, 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 no. You got to understand when Babylon defeated Israel, the death culture of Babylon was exalted as the only way to survive in the world. It got glorified. And all that death and all that destruction became the pathway that people were saying, that's how you make it in the world. And God said, no, this is my world and my life that is found in me and me alone. That brings about flourishing. Is being cast to the side. And he said, I'm going to chase after my life for my world. That's his beauty. That's his jealousy. It's for our good. And so he says, I'm going to do this for my name. Because I want real life to once again take shape in my world. Not because Israel was great. Actually, Ezekiel 36 is explicit. It's like it's nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with God's purposes for life in Israel. Again, extraordinary. And he says, I'm going to do something that only I can do. And so he makes all these glorious promises in Ezekiel 36. And then Ezekiel 37 is the grand vision that illustrates these promises. And he invites Ezekiel to actually participate and speak these words over a people. And so they miraculously as a nation are reborn and unified and placed back in land and filled with his spirit. This vision, it's glorious. And it's anchored in the promises of Ezekiel 36. Now, to be clear, as you heard it read, if there was any prophet in my mind, In the Old Testament, who I thought dropped acid, it was probably Ezekiel. I mean, this is pretty intense, but it's exceptional at the same time. It's exceptional. So let's walk through it together and see what God has to say for us today. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 4. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, we're often not great at recognizing death. But here it's pretty explicit. (laughs) Not only do we have, you know, it's not like you're looking around and be like, oh, there's some neighbors who accidentally started napping. Are they actually dead? And you're kicking their foot. No, 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 no. Like these are bones, dry, arid bones, far down the decomposition pathway of death. It's just bones. There is no mistaking the death of this valley. We are meant to picture despair, hopelessness. Any sign of life was gone a long time ago. This is dry death. This is about as close to dirt as you can get. And God says, Son of man. I want you to hold on to that title because that's actually a really important title throughout the whole biblical narrative. We'll come back to that. He says, can these bones live? Can these bones live? I mean, if we didn't know God, that would not only sound impossible, it would sound sarcastic, wouldn't it? You're looking at it bones, dry bones. He's like, can can these bones live? But God asks this question because nothing is impossible with God, which... Is an astounding statement in and of itself when you're looking at bones, okay? And so he says, he tells the prophet to prophesy. Look with me again, verses 4 through 6. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God tells the prophet to actually proclaim the son of man, he says, I'm gonna give you words to say and I want you to speak them over these bones and I'm gonna work through these words. And so he begins to prophesy that the breath would come into these bones and I wanna stop there because this word breath is really important. In Hebrew, the word up there at the beginning in verse one of chapter 37, where it says, in the spirit of the Lord, that word spirit and the word breath in Hebrew are the same word, ruach. Breath, spirit, and wind are three ways that you can translate this word ruach. And here, when he's saying put breath in you, we're meant to actually, as a Hebrew listener, would hear this reverberation of ruach, ruach, the same spirit that actually took Ezekiel up is the one that's being breathed in to, to these dry carcasses. And actually, it's the same word as we saw last week in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the ruach Elohim, the spirit of God that actually brought beautiful order in the midst of chaos. It's this one that is to be breathed and to come and to bring life. And so what's next? After he prophesies that this breath would come, you begin to see almost the, if you can imaginatively join Ezekiel in this vision, you see bones joining to bones. Then you see sinews coming on top and then there's flesh and then there's skin. It's almost like this reconstruction and remantling of a body that had been dismantled over decomposition. But still it's not alive. Not just because it has flesh is it now alive. What happens? He has to prophesy again that the breath, the ruach, would blow on and come in the body. There's something powerful about that. That it's not just physical makeup that makes us alive. It's spiritual renewal. And then once the spirit comes, they are ready for battle. Not just existing, wobbling, shaking, fragile, moving about, but ready for battle. You see, God explains that this is what he plans to do through his people, those who are his, that he will raise them up from the dead. And then in verse 14 of chapter 37, we read, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Not an if, not an and, not a but, but a period. Now, this is describing the national restoration of Israel within the history of the world. Simultaneously, though, what we are given here is a window into how God goes about his redemptive reconciling work of new life the world over. Now, a couple of hints as to why that is the case. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which I've already hinted at a minute ago, you'll find an extraordinary number of parallels In Genesis chapter one and two, you find order out of chaos, like we find here. You find life out of dry substance, like we find here. You find life being breathed into recreated human beings, like we find here. You find two being made one, which you have a divided Israel, with Judah and Israel now becoming one. And in Genesis chapters one and two, you find Adam and Eve, which are now one flesh, and you find God's presence uniquely among them. There's tons of parallels. What are we to see there? Is this just a recapitulation of Genesis 1 and 2? No. What we begin to see is a pattern about how God goes about new life in his world when it's utterly decimated. A pattern. This is how God works. Such that even in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 35, if you go and look at that passage, if you've got your Bible, just flip over there. He says, I'm gonna make the land like what? A garden. Eden Ezekiel knows how God works in the world and he's saying when God shows up this is how he works he brings new life by the spirit and his world which was decimated by sin all the way back in Genesis 3 when the serpent came to Adam and Eve and he said listen 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 you can eat that fruit I know God said don't but you know he's just trying to keep stuff from you you surely will not what die. Death and life. They're not able to recognize death. And as soon as they eat the fruit, part of them dies instantly. Other parts of them die slowly. Death breaks into the world. The world is decimated. And as ancestors of those original rebellious creatures, we too wrestle within death and find ourselves in dry and arid places. But what we see again and again is every time God shows up, he goes about remaking his world, his people. This is his pattern. It's a window for you and for me as to how we experience new life in him. And here's the secret between life and death. Here it is. Only when the Spirit comes to live in us are we really alive you got to see the whole vision that Ezekiel lays out there. you got to think about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 if you want to get this full picture. But only when the Spirit comes to live in us are we really alive. Now, there's a couple things in that statement we're going to unpack here. One is we need to admit that we need the Spirit's life. You have to admit that you're dead, that you're dry bones without the Spirit in your life. Now, some of us here, we might think, hey, we're pretty good dry bones. Man, you should see. I mean, I, I I'm good, dry bones. Like I'm kind to my neighbor. You know, I I even volunteer for hard jobs at work sometimes. And even though I don't volunteer, I think about volunteering, which is an honorable mention. I don't, you know, I don't gossip, or at least not maliciously. You know, sometimes I gossip, but it's not like I'm trying to destroy anybody's life. You know, I'm respectful either to my spouse or to the person of the opposite sex that I'm on a date with. Listen, you know, I'm pretty good, but in the reality, all of that is just really shiny bones. And you know it. You're hungry for more. You know, and you long. You're like, man, there's got to be more than this. And then there's others of us in here that we might be thinking, you know what, Gabe? I'm just, like, my goal isn't like being morally good according to someone else's standard. I'm just trying to be true to me. So I'm honest about my needs and the needs of others. I seek to be respectful of those. I try to be honest about what I'm feeling and what I long for. And I chase that down. I try not to judge others and I don't expect others to judge me because that's the world that I think is best. I think ultimately what we just really need to be is the truest point of ourselves. And all that really is is really shiny bones. Real true bones are still bones. Death is death. And there are parts of us, even when we're truest to ourselves, that irk us. That we wish, man, I want to be true to myself, but not that part of myself. What do we do with that? I want to be true to who I am, but not that part of who I am. That, listen, I don't want that to be true. What do you do? Do you just got to submit? Or is there more? What we find across the biblical narrative and how God is working in his world is that we cannot make ourselves alive. No one in here can resuscitate. Anybody watch SNL? It's the old Chris Farley where they're both sitting there and they're like newscasters and he like has a heart attack and he like gives himself. And he's like, oh, that makes a baker's dozen. Um, like he's trying to give himself is you know, like not CPR, but whatever it is. Um, it wasn't in my notes. So that's probably why I can't figure it out. But None of us can make ourselves alive. We need something outside of us to breathe life into us. And that only happens when God comes to live in us. Not when we've dabbled with a couple ideas. Not when we've, you know, explored our spirituality. Not when we figured out a new persona that we can put on the resume when we're talking with each other so we can finally feel good about ourselves again. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes to make his home in you. Not a force, not a wind, but an actual person comes to dwell in you, to make you alive. Is this how you think about the Holy Spirit? Because this is what we see on display. And he comes to animate what was once dead. And sometimes when he brings new life, it's painful. Resetting bones Stretching sinews, placing on flesh, stretching on skin. Does that sound comfortable? No, but it ends beautiful, and it makes you more vulnerable, but living things bleed, and that's worth it. New life. It's beautiful. It's powerful, but it only comes when he comes to actually dwell in us, and he animates us rather than us giving dictation to him. He comes to reside in us. I love the way Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says, the life the Spirit gives us is not an abstract packaging of blessing. It is his own life that he shares with us, the life of the fellowship with the Father and the Son. Thus, the Spirit is not like some divine milkman living the gift of life on our doorsteps only to move on and giving us life he comes in to be with us and to remain with us. Having once given life, then he does not move on. He stays to make that life blossom and grow. This is what God does. And then we're alive. Then we're alive. And what God has designed us to be, both beautiful creatures, finally is able to blossom in the unique way that he's actually wired us to be by the power of the Spirit in line with the purposes of the gospel and his word. Because there's, listen, there's a lot of other pseudo-living strategies out there, aren't there? One uh, that's one of my personal favorites, if you're talking about, hey, Gabe struggles, is adrenaline. (laughs) Adrenaline. It's this hashtag no regrets kind of life. What that means is you do whatever is on the steps of your, you know, comfort zone, and you go right past that, (laughs) and you do it. Man, there's like a jolt of adrenaline. It's like a hit. So you say what you feel no matter what it costs because you're being true to you. Mm, hit Hit of adrenaline right there. Ooh, there was risk. You go do what you feel like you just need to do regardless of what it costs everyone else. Ooh, hit of adrenaline. Ooh, that feels good. You say what you want. You do what you want. It's called absolute negative freedom. You just go and chase everything that's your heart's desire, no matter what it costs, and the adrenaline, the excitement. You travel as much as you can. You spend as much money as you can. Every next purchase gives you another hit. Every next travel and every next experience gives you another hit until finally you become addicted to adrenaline. And like most addicts, we don't even realize it until we're way too far and the hooks are way too deep. And then you realize you'll sacrifice anything to get that feeling of life again. Even the people you love the most. You're like, why am I leaving and chasing these these things that are actually destroying me are actually destroying the most close relationships to me just to have this feeling? Because we want this pseudo life, this feeling of being alive when actually the spirit doesn't say, hey, you got to do this, do that, and then come with this exact price and then I'll help you feel alive. No, 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 no. He comes and he says, I'm going to make you alive. And sometimes it's going to feel like death. Sometimes, but I'm going to make you alive. Everything else is a Band-Aid to a corpse or polishing bones. Everything else is death. And and as I was wrestling through Ezekiel 37, I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, but how? (laughs) How, right? Like, how does the spirit come to dwell within us? Because it's clear in Ezekiel that God takes the initiative. That's what's clear. God's the one who actually comes, and he, the, the, the bones can't say, hey, you know what, like, I'm just going to reach out. I'm going to put my bone up here. And like, no, the bones are there. Nothing. I mean, they're motionless. And God's like, I'm going to do this because, oh, and we'll get to that. But I'm going to do this. He takes the active initiative towards us. But we're left wanting more. Like in Ezekiel 37, you're like, okay, give me a little bit more. And actually... When you come to look, even with Ezekiel 37, where it's talking about the national restoration of Israel, one that actually does happen, which it does happen in history, where the people come back to Israel, the walls are rebuilt. Look at Nehemiah, and they rebuild the tabernacle, or the temple. They're weeping because it doesn't, it pales in comparison to what it used to be. And it seems like all the prophetic vision that we see across the prophets has something way more cosmic, way bigger, that's including a lot more people than just Israel and what God wants to do in the world. And so there's this confusion this wrestling, this tension of more. And you're almost wondering, it's like, man, I wish Jesus would talk about this. Well, he does. I know, like, that's a bit of a setup. He does. In John chapter three, he has this text explicitly in mind. So turn with me, if you haven't already, if you, you know, that was like my hyperlink kind of button. John chapter three. Like, let's go to John chapter three together because Jesus has this conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is like an Old Testament or Hebrew scholar of scholars. He's got the whole Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, memorized, and more than likely, the, this oral tradition that was twice as long as the Old Testament memorized. I mean, he is known as the teacher of Israel. This dude is sharp. And when he meets with Jesus, you may start to think, oh, they're talking about something else, because they're talking about the kingdom of God. But that's actually a theme that's strewn throughout the whole biblical narrative. And so, as they're talking the kingdom of God, I want you to think about this. God's purposes and his promises in heaven come to earth. That's what he's talking about underneath the reign of God. And so, he starts talking about this. And then Jesus says, hey, you can only be, what does he say in John chapter 3, you can only enter the kingdom of God if you are born again. And then Nicodemus is like, hey, 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 that's weird. Um, He goes very, very literal, and he's like, there's no way I'm crawling back up in my mama's womb. That doesn't make any sense, which I don't blame him. If that's what you're thinking, that is weird, okay? So Jesus, he comes back with a clarifier. And he says, actually, yeah, nobody's going to see the kingdom of God unless one is born of water and the spirit. Water and the spirit. Now, <clears throat> does water here mean baptism? No. See, this is where we start jumping way too quick and we start looking at the things that we're doing today and trying to subvert them or trying to squeeze them back in the text. Now, we can eventually get there and how that represents what Jesus is talking about. But when he's using water and the spirit, Jesus is talking to an Old Testament pro from an Old Testament language. He's actually pointing to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 26, where God says he will sprinkle the hearts of the people clean he will cleanse them from their unrighteousness and then he will put his spirit in them he's actually going back to this question in Ezekiel 36 and 37 these promises that were illustrated in this vision where people are saying how is this going to happen when is this going to happen when is your kingdom going to come when are you going to bring about this restoration and Jesus says you got to be born again of water and spirit you've got to think back in these categories of what God is actually doing And he's going to cleanse, and he's going to put his spirit in us. And then in verse 6, he says something that's also pretty astounding. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right, Riddlers of Riddlers, right? Like, what's going on here? What he's saying is, pigs give birth to pigs. Dogs give birth to dogs. Rats give birth to rats. Same way, flesh gives birth to flesh, like to like. And So spirit gives birth to spirit. The spirit has to bring about that new birth, like to like. Do you see what I'm saying here? Are we following together? Are we walking together through John 3 a little bit, following? Okay. Thank you. There there we go. I got it. Good, good, good. So somebody's with me. That's great. Now, John 3, as he's walking through this, he's saying, okay, this has to happen. You have to have this new birth. The spirit has to give you new life. But How? (laughs) you're still wondering like, okay, this feels like a lot like Ezekiel 36 and 37, but how? Jump down to verses 14 and 15. Here's the payoff right here. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man, where does that language? I told you to hold on to it. That's back from Ezekiel. The son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you, are you connecting the dots? Are you following the text? So you have Jesus and Nicodemus having this conversation of Ezekiel 36 and 37. And now Jesus zeroes it in on himself. And he's like, in the same way Ezekiel is called the Son of Man, I am the better and true Son of Man. Now, I want you to understand the backdrop for this passage. Once again, there's a lot that Scripture kind of speaks into one another and into itself. This story specifically where Moses lifts up the serpent is from the book of Numbers. After the people of Israel have come out of the Exodus from the oppressive regime of Egypt and God had brought about extraordinary liberation, they're in the midst of the wilderness and they're walking around. They had all these expectations of what God was supposed to do for him if he was a good God, and he wasn't doing those things. And Moses wasn't doing it fast enough. I don't know if anybody else has been there before. Anyone? nobody okay so great so they're walking around the wilderness and they're like hey God you know what more we're thinking about this the longer we're eating this manna junk that's showing up every morning that has this weird funky taste the longer we're in the midst of this wilderness not yet to the promised land that you've supposedly talked about we're saying hey I'm remembering at least they had good grocery stores and good restaurants in Egypt sure we were being beaten up and being decimated but listen I could get a great burger Oh, this, is, this wasn't worth it. This isn't the quality of life I signed up for. So they begin to complain against Moses and therefore against God, because their expectations weren't being met at their timeline. And God was like, "All right, you want death? you want to go back to Egypt? He, and this is another sermon for another day, but he allows like these venomous serpents to get into the camp and they just start biting people. <laughs> it's like, just I don't know, I'm terrified of snakes. y'all, I've had some bad traumatic experiences as a kid, but here's the deal. Just imagine these snakes, they're biting people, and people are dying. And then they cry out for mercy, and God says, okay, okay. So you don't want to go back to Egypt. All right, because that's what it was like back in Egypt. I was giving you what you wanted. Once again, God gives us what we want often. And often we're like, God, why did you do that? And he's like, I gave you what you wanted. Um, what's the deal? So these sermons come. People are dying. They ask for mercy, and then he tells Moses, he's like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to craft a bronze serpent, and you're going to lift it up. And anybody who looks to that serpent and understands that if because I have commanded this that if they look to that serpent, the venom will be gone and they'll live. That's it. They just got to look at the bronze serpent. Look it up. Numbers. It's a crazy story. But man, it makes a ton of sense because what it's doing there is saying, if you're just going to trust that God can indeed work, he can work through anything. You just got to look and he's saying, listen, look at the serpent and you'll be healed. And then Jesus says in the same way that Moses did that with a serpent, the son of man will be lifted up. And in the gospel account of John, every time you see this language lifted up, it's in correlation with the cross. So when you look at the son of man who's lifted up on the cross, whoever believes in him, that crucified Messiah who's not gonna fit your categories of what I promised and yet it's exactly what I have promised. If you look to him, if you believe in him, then you'll have the life that you're longing for that Ezekiel has been talking about. If you look to him. When we look to Jesus' death as our only hope, he sends the spirit to bring life. That's the biblical, st- biblical answer to this magnificent question. God has not come to make just really good people a little bit better. He's come to make dead people alive. And we'll only experience that new life when we realize there's nothing else we can do. There's not a bunch of potions and dynamics that we can do to try to fix the venom from the snakes that we've been. We just gotta look to the bronze serpent. You just gotta look to the cross. You gotta realize your bones are dry without Jesus. And so I'm gonna get real practical. Here's what, here's the path to new life. Trust in Jesus's death for the Spirit's life. Trust in Jesus's death for the Spirit's life. That's what Jesus is saying here. Trust in who he is. He is the, the new and better son of man of Ezekiel. He is the prophet who has come to speak what God has declared him to speak. He is also not just declaring God's word, but John chapter one, remember this. It is the word become flesh. and the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus is the new and better son of man. He's come to not only proclaim the word of God, but he is the word of God, and he is God. When God says back in Ezekiel 37, I will do it, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna do it. God become flesh, and so we believe who he is and what he has done. He has lived the perfect life that no one, neither us individually, Israel nationally, could ever live. And then he died the sufficient death being fully God and fully man. He stood in our place. He paid the debt that we deserve to pay that we might then experience his life if we just look to him for that life. And in his resurrection, he validated three days later that he is truly the son of God, that the life he has within him is more resilient than death itself. And he's come to give it to you and to me. The one who has the source of life that is the source of life came to give his life that he could share his life. That's what we get to trust in. That's who we trust in. And it doesn't matter who you are. Because <laughs> dead is dead. That's the beauty of this message, is it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or what's been done to you. This life is available to all because it is not based upon what you bring to the table. God values you, yes. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent his son he would not have sent his spirit. He would not have gone about this redemptive plan. But we don't bring ourselves to the table to purchase anything but only to receive. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so what does this look like? And we're gonna close it up here soon. Um, oh my. Um, this is what it looks like. John chapter three, verse eight. We see that when the spirit comes to live in you, your life is different now i'm not saying your life is better that you look more holy than anyone else don't start putting in your own categories of the past on that don't 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 do that that's where shame meets us that's where guilt listen this is what the spirit does he meets us he brings new life and shapes us into that life for our good over time. This is the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You may not know the mechanics of the spirit and as much as we try to understand the equilibrium of the planet and the equalizing of the sun and the heat and so on, we don't understand completely the mechanics of the wind, but we do see its effects. When you see a tree moving, even though you can't see the wind, you can see its effects. And so we see the effects of the spirit it animates us, and in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the gifts the Spirit gives. We're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk, which a lot of people want to talk about the gifts. Not as many people want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit because he makes us into a kind of person that's pretty radical in and of itself, that's very sacrificial, that looks a lot more like the cross of Christ. But there's a lot that's going on where he intercedes for us, reminds us that we belong to an adopted family. He reveals the truth to us in the community of faith together. There's a beautiful work that the Spirit does in And through us. And so, how do we know that Jesus has this life? John chapter 3, verse 13, he makes it abundantly clear the rest of the world is going by angelic intermediaries or by rationalism or reason. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I came from heaven to show you the way to live the life of heaven. No one else can declare that. He comes declaring this based upon the new revelation that's exclusively in him because of who he is. That is the anchor point for us as followers of Jesus. It's who Jesus is. And why did he do this? If you have any sort of healthy skepticism of authority of people who say they do things like this, like me, I wanna know why. And this is where we go to the hallmark passage of the Christian faith, John 3, 16, 17, and 18, although 18 won't be on the screen because I forgot to put it up there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn bones. He came to bring life. And we find life when we look at the cross and we say, you are my life. And then he gives the spirit, not just that we have a product of life, but that God will live in us and give us the life that we long to live, the life we were designed to live by the power of the spirit within us. This is what we see in Ezekiel 36 and 37. He's saying, I've done all of this that you might know that I am Yahweh. That you might know me and that I would know you, the intimacy, the longing. This is the good news that apart from the Holy Spirit, we are dead. Only when the Spirit comes to live in us are we really alive. And so, knowing what you now know, as revealed across the biblical narrative before us, are you really alive? Is it just adrenaline? If you're not alive, admit that you're dead. Believe in who Jesus is and what he's done and confess your brokenness and let the spirit of God come dwell within you. It's that simple, an act of prayer and surrender and acceptance. If you are a follower of Jesus, maybe this is a time of revival. It's renewing of life. Maybe you've been doing what sometimes scripture talks about, quenching the spirit. He's guiding you in the way of life. You, you've been given life by the spirit. Why not walk in the spirit? And some of us have been given life by the spirit, but we're walking in the flesh. That means in life and old patterns that are contrary to the gospel. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you the fullness of this life. Maybe it's a time for revival. Don't live in denial. Now's the time. All right, I have taken way too much time. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your gift of life that you've made clear is through Jesus looking to him and this is through whom you give us the spirit who dwells within us and then offers new life and then does his work within us from the inside out. If there are those here who are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that they would use this time right now to admit their death, to believe on Jesus, to confess their brokenness, and to receive him. May they do that. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, bring about a revival, a new life by the gospel. Continue to, the same way we've been given life in the spirit, may we walk in the spirit. May we know the joy and the life that comes in him. Guide us, we pray, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, now we turn to a meal that in the same way reminds us of the gospel. We see Jesus' death and on display in broken bread as it displays his body broken for us and in common juice that represents his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. This meal is nourishing to those who have received the life in Christ, but it's also a proclamation of judgment for those who have not. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to use this as a time to ask God to continue to reveal his love for you. We are dead without him, and he's offering us life. Whenever you're ready, please come.